Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Books, Bites, Booze, the podcast. If you're new here, I'm Madison. Hey, I'm Alexis. And on this episode, we are going to wrap up our discussion on the night swim. And we also have a very special guest, the author Megan Golden will be joining us. Yay! (laughs) I loved talking to her. She was so interesting and I loved hearing about her career and everything. I'm so excited for you guys to hear about it. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it's a really great interview. We touch on some pretty, you know, deep and important topics, I think. Yeah. Which I think is hilarious because we started out being like, we're not going to ask you anything deep. And then we totally just dove into deep conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So definitely keep listening. That interview will be at the end of this episode. So what are you drinking, Alexis? Well, I had a Trader Joe's run this week. So if anyone has a Trader Joe's in their city, this one is for you. I got the rosé from that. It's not the two buck chuck one, the one that they sell. It's like $2.99 for every bottle. It's the one right above it. So it's $3.99. I think it's Shaw. I think that's the name of it. But it's their rosé. It is amazing. I honestly have gone through two bottles since (laughs) I bought it. But um, (laughs) it is so good. I got the rosé the Chardonnay, and then I got the regular um, $2.99 bottle of the Merlot. I haven't gotten to the Merlot yet, but I'll start that one soon. Yum. Yeah, so rosé all day. (laughs) And I'm celebrating. It's getting warmer. What are you – I'm so sorry I'm being selfish, Madison. What are you drinking? Please tell me about it. Um, I'm drinking a – I don't even – I don't have a name for this, but I've just kind of been on this kick lately with – Crown vanilla and lemonade, but Ooh. I added a little extra to it. So I did crown vanilla, lemonade, and I did the light lemonade this time. And so it's a little less calories and um, some mango pineapple juice with it. That sounds so good. You always have the best fruity cocktails. I know. I don't know what's up with that. I that need sounds- to like get off the fruity cocktails for a while. I feel like lemonade makes cocktail mixing so easy because you can put anything with lemonade and it'll be good. I totally agree. Yeah, I totally do. Like I do. I'll drink it with vodka, with um, whiskey, with rum. Yeah, I'll drink lemonade with any liquor. So we're just going to jump right into the discussion um, since we have our interview at the end of this episode. So uh, just to give you guys a quick recap about what we talked about in part one and covered about the first half of the book, um, we stopped right before the trial began. Rachel Crawl is the host of a podcast called Guilty or Not Guilty, and it's a true crime podcast that covers different cases. Season one and season two were such big hits, so for season three... She is in a small town called Neopolis, which is kind of like an Outer Banks kind of feel, a coastal, really small town, and um, she's covering a rape trial. The victim is Kelly Moore. Defendant is Scott Blair. He was a really prominent name in the small town. He comes from a really well-known family. He was like a champion swimmer. On his way to be in the Olympics, uh, had a bunch of sponsorships and scholarships and all that kind of stuff for swimming that have all been taken away from him because he had these rape charges filed against him. Where we kind of left off is Rachel's in town to cover the rape trial, but she's also getting notes from an unknown person named Hannah Steeles. She's never met Hannah, but Hannah has just been trying to contact her for years to get her to look into her sister's death, which happened, I think, like 25 years ago in the same town. So her sister died in Neapolis. Um, It was ruled accidental, and they said that she drowned one night while swimming, Um, but her sister has always believed that it was murder. And so she's really wanted Rachel to look into her sister's case. Rachel really never has. I mean, she gets thousands and thousands of requests to cover different cases all the time. But once she starts reading Hannah's letters and kind of learning about what happened and how 
it has affected Hannah over the years. She really can't let it go. And so she decides to start looking into it while she's there covering the trial. So we jump right into the trial when we start chapter 22, I believe is where we left off. Uh, So that jumps right into the trial. And we learned about the process of picking the jury for the rape trial. And they had such a hard time because they couldn't find anybody who was unbiased in the situation. You know, everybody in Neapolis had pretty much heard about the rape trial and either knew Kelly or knew Scott Blair. And so it was very hard for them to pull people. They ended up having to get people from out of town. And Rachel, the narrator of the story, kind of goes into how the jurors, they don't really care about Kelly's story that much. I don't know if I should say care, but like they're a little, like everybody is a little biased just based on their upbringing. Like some of them are raised differently and they are just more prone to take Scott's care, Scott's side over it. Or some of them are just naturally going to take Kelly's side, which is true in real life as well. You know, everybody has their own bias and she kind of dives into that jury selection. Yeah. And I think she also mentioned that they kind of just didn't want to be there. Like, it was kind of getting called to jury duty. And, you know, like, everybody who gets called to jury duty wants to cover a really interesting case, like a murder trial or something crazy. But she described it as, you know, everybody just thought a rape case was kind of boring, I guess, in that Mm -hmm. town. And so nobody was really, like, interested in it. Yeah, because the only people left to choose from didn't know either of the people personally, so they didn't care about it. The only people who wanted to be involved are the people who knew either the victim or Scott. Right. So um, they start kind of combing through um, the jury or whatever. They select their 12 jurors, and we have Mitch Alkins, who is the prosecutor, Um, And he is with the Moore family, which is the victim. And then we have uh, Del Quinn, who is defending Scott Blair in the Blair family. And Del Quinn is kind of described as almost like a a guy that you would want to feel bad for, like kind of like an underdog is how Rachel describes him. But he just kind of has a soft, everybody has like a soft place for him. Whereas Mitch Alkins is very stern and like doesn't play around. Yeah, I think both of them kind of know how to manipulate, not manipulate, but, you know, control the narrative to their advantage. Mitch Alkins comes in very intimidating. He's very factual. He commands attention. People really want to listen to him when he talks. And then Dale Quinn, he knows how to play it and relate to the jury. And so make it feel like he's a part of their team, make it feel like they're all a part of this trial together, like in the very, very beginning, the first time that he talks after uh, Mitch Atkins has done the whole um, opening statement, he gets up and then he pretends to trip and like has to catch himself and he breaks the tension and he ends up connecting with the jury because they all kind of relate to that. And they're like, oh, you know, I've, I've been embarrassed like that before. And they feel that sense of connection with him. So it's it's interesting to see how the two of them come in and control the room. Right. So Rachel um, has a seat for court every day for the trial and for the media. Um, However, like nobody is very happy that she is covering the trial for her podcast. I think there's a lot of different opinions on whether true crime podcasts are actually helpful Or if, you know, people that listen to them and their fans are just kind of obsessed with somebody else's tragedy, which I kind of get that. I'm super obsessed with True Crime Podcast. And a lot of people tell me that it's weird and like unhealthy to have obsessions with this. Uh, No, ma'am, it is not. (laughs) So many people are in that. Yeah, I think it's important. Um, I think, you know, a lot of like cold cases or families okay like I think this kind of relates to the Stills family and what happened to Jenny is her family wasn't important they were an important name in that community they were looked at as poor and you know on the lesser end of that whole community they weren't prominent they didn't have a lot of money so I think you know even in today's times when you have families like that around the world and somebody in their family's murdered, they don't get as much attention as 
well-known families do or people that have more money or, you know, so I think it's important that these true crime podcasts, you know, cover cases all over the world and they really bring light to the situation to cases that have like been on left on a shelf for 25, 30, you know, however many years. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know if you remember the whole Natalie Holloway story back when we were kids, she was from Birmingham where I'm from Mm -hmm. and her family, I mean, they threw everything they had into investing into media and like news attention. And they did stories with people all across the nation. And I mean, her story was featured all across the U S and you know, I mean, it's such a tragedy what happened to her. I mean, we still don't know, but it just proves your point. You know, like if you can invest in those kind of things, it does help your case because it gets the word out there. Yeah, no. Yeah, I totally agree. So that is kind of, you know, like the judge isn't very happy. Uh, Mitch Alkins even expresses his opinions about her podcast. And she also starts getting a lot of different opinions from the audience. Some people, you know, are uncomfortable with her covering a rape trial and, you know, others think that it's a really important topic. So she's kind of dealing with both sides. So the story that is being told, this is kind of like a he said, she said case. I guess it is most of the time, you know, in in a rape trial. Um, but so what is being told is She, Kelly went to her friend's house, uh, Lexi, and her friend got mad at her. They got in an argument and her friend kicked her out of the party and made her walk home. Um, As Kelly was walking home, this guy popped up and he was an old friend. They sat on the swings, kind of talked, blah, blah, blah. Then Scott Blair showed up. He told her that he was going to take her home. And she even said like in her testimony that, you know, he was really nice to her. He wasn't, you know, mean or being an ass or anything. So she thought, okay, yeah, like he'll take me home. So she gets in the car with him and he didn't take her home. And then he tells her that he's going to take her to get pizza. So they went and ate pizza together. And after that, he told her that he was, that he wanted to go to the beach So then he took her to the beach and his account is that they had consensual sex and that she was embarrassed afterwards. So then she said that he raped her. Her account is that they went to the beach and he raped her, that she did not give consent, that she refused several, several, several times that she was crying. And um, basically he just gave it. He did what he wanted to anyway. Then after that, um, he left her on the beach. She fell asleep, I think is what she said. And uh, later he returned with like some soap and body wash and shampoo and made her shower in the outdoor shower at the beach to wash away all the evidence. Her testimony was the hardest to read in the book for me. Like her, you can just tell throughout the whole scene she's uncomfortable she is so she's reliving it she's having a panic attack right there on the stand like it was so hard to read that from her and she just kept making the point there is no way that scott could have mistaken her like she just said i kept saying no i said no i don't want it no i don't want to do this and like you said he did it anyways so she came out gave the testimony she actually couldn't finish and so she had to leave the stand and they asked if they could have her come back later and finish it. Yeah. So that Del Quinn could cross examine her. And he was actually, you know, kind of irritated because he acted like he really cared, you know, that she was going through a hard time, but in the same way, he kept saying that he couldn't give his client a fair trial if he couldn't thoroughly cross-examine the witness that was being put on the stand. So they went back and forth with that, and the judge ultimately gave her a few days to calm down, and they said that they would bring her back up onto the stand so that uh, Del Quinn could cross-examine her later on. Um, And then her mom, they also called her mom as a witness. Her mom gave, you know, a similar really sad testimony about how, you know, once right, once 
she did come home that night, Kelly, that when she got there, she just hid in her room and cried for a while until finally she let her mom in and told her what happened. Yeah, and for a while they didn't even know that she was home because Kelly's parents had called the cops and they had filed a missing persons report and everything and they were being interviewed. And then, you know, the next day her mom goes upstairs and finds that Kelly is home, locked in her room, like you said. And uh, the defense or the, yeah, the defense, Scott Blair's team kind of was like, you know, how do you know that they didn't just go have consensual sex and her come home later? And they're just kind of trying to argue it back and forth. Right. And then um, the prosecutor calls their witness to the stand who um, she was the doctor that processed Kelly's rape kit mm-hmm. and at the hospital. So they called her to the stand and she testified that, you know, with all of her findings that it was no doubt in her mind that Kelly had been raped, that the bruises on her arms and on her legs and also the injuries inside of her were pretty obvious to her that Kelly had been raped and that it wasn't consensual sex. But the defense called another witness up who was also in the same medical field and saw Kelly's rape kit results and basically disagreed with everything the prosecutor's witness said, and he said that with what he saw, that you couldn't tell whether it was consensual or not. So the, whoever the jury chose to believe between that, you don't really know because there were basically conflicting testimonies. Yeah. And again, just like you said, he said, she said, it, it's just one person's word against the others. And so a lot of it comes down to who the jury believes. Right. So another big witness was Vince Knox. Vince Knox was originally called by the defense, so by Scott's, Scott Blair's team, to testify um, because years ago when Scott was like 16, he had saved a little boy from drowning and Vince was there and saw it happen. So he testified to, I guess, kind of give Scott this kind of hero look to the jury. But later on, it does come out that Kelly is not emotionally stable enough to go back to the stand. Um, They actually call Vince Knox back to the stand, and we learn what he actually knows. Which, while this is happening... Rachel is getting all these different messages from Hannah. Hannah is continuing to leave her notes on the car. Um, I believe she emails her at one point or they find one of her emails. And she's kind of giving Rachel these clues to parts of her sister's case. And Rachel ends up finding the grave of Hannah's sister. She goes out there and someone comes to visit while she's there, which we'll talk about in a second. And she finds out that the morgue at the hospital, the the person who works there, had actually kept photos of Hannah's sister's body, which is creepy. Let me just go ahead and preface that. But he had actually kept the photos because he felt like something was being buried there. Like people were telling him to get rid of all the evidence. It's being, you know written off as an accident and he was just like this is clearly not an accident took pictures of it because hannah's sister had just marks all over her body Um, yeah like she had been beaten really badly yeah it was clear that it was not an accident right that she hadn't just jumped off the jetty and drowned while swimming this is a huge moment you know like it's a proof that jenny was not just swimming and hit her head and drowned Um, so that was a big moment, but let's talk about the graveyard scene. Yes. Okay. So she goes, she finds the flowers, the bouquet that had been left on the grave. She actually tracks down the florist based off of the ribbon. So she goes to the florist shop. She tracks down who left the flowers. And while they can't tell her who left them, they can tell her how often the flowers are being delivered. And there was actually one scheduled for delivery, I think the next day, and it was the anniversary of her death or like the anniversary of her murder. And so she goes back out there and she starts watching and someone sure enough shows up and like goes out there. And it was Mitch. That threw me for a loop. 
Yes, yeah, the prosecutor. I did not see that coming. Yeah, me too. Yeah, that was crazy. So Mitch, the pro, the attorney for the prosecutor, um, he was delivering flowers to Jenny's grave every year on the anniversary. So, and it came with a note that did not say anything except, I'm sorry. So then Rachel tries to track Mitch down after court one day and he refuses to talk to her, won't say anything. And she's like, I don't want to ask you anything about the trial. I want to ask you about a girl named Jenny Stills who died, you know, 25 years ago or however long. She tell can tell that he like tenses up, but he, he, he yeah, refuses just storms to talk off to her at that moment. Here. Yeah, and remember, we also talked about this in part one, that the night that Jenny Stills died, there was also a car crash with four um, high school boys that night, and two of them died in the car crash. Uh, what The other one that was driving crashed into the tree, and his two friends died, and he went up, ended up going to prison mm-hmm. or going to jail for a while for manslaughter. And so Jenny's death just kind of got overlooked. Um, and a lot of people in the community didn't even think anything about it. They didn't even really notice because those high school boys basically took the spotlight. Yeah, which was so devastating. And the as the book is continuing, we're getting all these flashbacks into Hannah's past. And she, like slowly we're learning what happened the day of Jenny's death. And you're starting to see, you know, more characters from their past. And so Rachel starts figuring out who these people are in present day. Like she tracks down the gas station owner, Rick, where they used to go in the afternoon, like her and Hannah Mm -hmm. or her and Jenny would go there and, you know, people would pick on them. And so Rachel's able to track down Rick. She's able to kind of start piecing together who some of the people are who pick on Jenny and Hannah throughout the day. And she starts getting all these pieces and she ends up, making a huge discovery about who all these people are. Do we want to go ahead and talk about the boys or do we want to hold off? Um, hold off. Okay. We'll come back to it, but she keeps making all these discoveries. So as we're covering the rape trial, we're also learning all of this stuff about Jenny and Hannah and that plot is picking up as well. Right. And so some of the characters that we're learning of with the rape trial, they're also going to overlap into the Jenny story. Yes. So that brings us a little bit, that brings us back to Vince Knox. Yes. Um, yeah, sorry. That was all build up to Vince no, Knox. Sorry. <laughs> so Vince Knox, um, his real name is actually Bobby. So his real, his real name is actually Bobby. He moved back to the area a couple years before and got a new name just to kind of start over basically. And he has these really bad third degree burns on him. Um, he doesn't have a house or anything to live in. He kind of lives like in these boat sheds on the same beach that Scott and Kelly were at that night. Um, the defense calls him to testify on how big of a hero Scott is. Well, the prosecution calls him back as a witness and asks him, you know, what actually happened that night. So he testified that although he wasn't there while Scott was raping Kelly, he didn't see that part. He actually found Kelly afterwards. So after Scott had left her there, he found her and put a shirt around her. And he testified that she was like shaking really bad that he could tell, you know, that she just kept saying and mumbling, like, let me go, let me go. So he could tell that something really bad had been done to her. Mm -hmm. So he hid in his boat shed when Scott got back with the shampoo and the soap and made her wash all the evidence away. Yeah. So the Scott Blair's team had called him because they wanted, you know, this random guy from town to be able to be like, yeah, Scott Blair has all these great things about him. He's going to be an Olympian. He's got this. He's got that. Everyone in town loves him. And they wanted to show that even this guy who lives in a shack on the beach, you know, like even he thinks Scott's amazing. But then it turned on them because then Kelly's team could call him and be like, hey, tell us about the actual night. Right. Because the defense didn't ask him that. They didn't even know that he was there that night. So Rachel was actually the one that hunted him down and got the truth out of him. And so that Mitch Alkins was able to call him back to the stand and ask him about it. 
And yeah. so he testified that once Scott got back and after she washed off that he pushed her up against the boat shed, which he was living in and told her that, you know, if she doesn't keep her mouth shut that um, it would happen again and again. And he'd bring friends next time and just all these crazy, terrible things to Kelly and Knox, AKA Bobby actually heard that. So he testified against him. Yeah, which up until this point, Vince Knox was super apathetic to the whole situation. He really didn't care to get involved. Like, you know, he had a new name. He didn't really want to be involved in town. But when Rachel found him, she was just like, no, you know what's going on. You're going to come testify right now. Yeah. Um, and so she keeps interrogating, not interrogating, but asking him questions and figures out that his real identity is Bobby and that he was in the car. And was a part of the the men who are the boys who wrecked and right. that he actually was the driver and he was the one who went to jail for it, but he doesn't remember any of it. Right. Yeah. She finds all this out. And then we go back kind of to Hannah's pl- uh, plot line and Hannah keeps leaving letters and we find out that she's been mentioning this guy named Bobby who is the same Bobby as Vince Knox. And so we find out that Bobby is actually not the nice one, but the nicest one of the gang of boys that has been traumatizing Jenny and Hannah. So he's actually connected to Hannah's story. Right. So with the Jenny and Hannah thing, basically, yeah, there had been this white pickup truck full of guys for the entire summer that had been picking on them. um, If they went to the beach or anything, They had took Jenny one night really late at night and something happened, but, you know, Hannah was too young at the time to kind of understand, but she just described it as once they dropped Jenny back off that night that she was really broken and that she was never the same after that, but she was too young at that point to kind of know or even have assumptions of what they could have done to her, but it kind of just continued to happen Jenny, they would just take Jenny, you know, late at night, you know, to the beach or whatever, and they wouldn't bring her home. But every time they brought her home, she was just really upset. Yeah, which I'm sure years later when it clicked that they were raping her, like, I can't even imagine the trauma that Hannah had to go through, which makes sense why she stayed silent all these years, because, you know, she's filled with that guilt and the trauma of her own. And so, yeah. Yeah, and you also remember that Jenny and Hannah's mom was really sick. So her mom wasn't even really coherent enough to know that something bad was happening to Jenny or Mm -hmm. that, you know, Jenny would try to stay so strong in front of her mom. And, you know, most days her mom couldn't even get out of bed or get off the couch. Or if she did, it would wear her out. So her mom didn't really even know that anything was happening to Jenny. Yeah, the only times that she really noticed that something was going on, Jenny would be like, oh, I have a cold. Right. I'm fine. Yeah. I just have a cold. So one day in particular, Jenny and Hannah were walking home from the grocery store. Hannah was really far ahead of Jenny, just thought that she was walking behind her. But once Hannah got a little further, she turned around and Jenny wasn't there. So she traced her steps backwards to the side of the road and she found their grocery bags that Jenny was carrying, but no Jenny. And when she looked down the road, she saw that familiar white pickup truck had turned off onto a dirt road. So she kind of ran out into the woods to cut them off. And that is where, for the first time that she saw them kind of on top of Jenny in the woods, She was still too young, I guess, to know what was happening at that moment. But Mm -hmm. the boys were standing around and one of them was on top of her. And then before she could run up there to save Jenny, Bobby or Vince Knox actually picked Hannah up and carried her off away from the woods and hid her in the back of the truck and told her to be quiet and not let the other boys find her. Yeah. So that was kind of why she associated Bobby, I guess, as being like the nicer one out of the group, even though he didn't do anything to stop anything that happened. Yeah, like he just went along with the whole thing and 
you know, kind of yeah. allowed it to happen, even though, yeah, he was trying to protect the younger sister and yeah, he didn't want to do any of it. He didn't actually rape Jenny, but I mean, he still was there and he never spoke up and he never turned anybody in. Right. And so later on, I mean, after that, she hides in the back of the cab of the truck. Um, then, I mean, she didn't even give a time, I guess, like hours later, they finally drug Jenny back to the truck after they were done with her. And um, they took her to the beach, basically started the whole thing all over again. But this time, Hannah was going to try to try to call 911 from a payphone and mm-hmm. the other boys heard her. So they actually got her and they had started this big bonfire and they were all like the guys were drinking beer. They had Jenny and Hannah laying on the ground. Well, Bobby had finally had enough after one of the boys tried to touch the younger sister, Hannah. Which is so disgusting. Like She's seriously nine years old. Right. Yeah. That was a really disturbing scene for me. But... So Bobby had really had enough at this point. He tackled the guy. They all got in a fight and basically they shoved Bobby into the fire, which is how he got all those terrible burns. But he thought his whole life that he got him because he drove and killed his friends and that the car basically blew up and that's how he got burned, but it wasn't. Yeah, which it was just awful. Like, I I knew that they were terrible. And then whenever they turned on Bobby, like, that was awful. Like, they went up and they beat him. They were kicking him, punching him. And then, actually, I'm looking at the page right now. And Hannah is saying, like, they they dived on him and rolled together in the direction of the bonfire until I heard Bobby scream. I didn't know why until I smelled burning human flesh. And, like, that's just... that just was awful that was horrible so they threw jenny and um vince in the back of the truck and hannah ran off towards um the gas station that rick worked at to try to get him to dial 911 so the boys left they were gonna take bobby to the hospital because they were like, oh shit, you know, what had we what have we done? He could die. Well, they knew that Jenny was the only one that knew what had happened. She was the only witness to what they did to Bobby. So if he didn't make it and he did die from his burns, that you know, they would go to jail. Mm-hmm. So ultimately they took her to the jetty, which overlooks you know, the ocean or this big cliff and basically threw her body down there. We later find out that who was the actual one that was driving the car and who was the one that threw Jenny's body off that jetty. None other than Dan Moore. Dun, dun, dun. Who is Kelly Moore, the victim in the rape trial's dad. That was just that wild. Was yeah, that was crazy. That yeah. Was. My jaw hit the floor. Like, my jaw was wide open when I read that because yeah, I, I was not that. expecting that. We find that out because basically he finally meets Hannah and confesses what he did. But he, you know, definitely doesn't want them to know. He brings a gun and he was basically going to try to kill Hannah, Hannah, but Rachel was there to stop it. It was at the jetty, wasn't it? It was at the yeah. same location. Yeah, at and the so, same location, yeah. Oh, my gosh, it was wild. And so Hannah was there, and, you know, Dan walks up with the gun in her face, and then all of a sudden Rachel pops out and is like, and, but he just kept saying, you know, I'm a changed man, I'm a changed man. I think what happened to Kelly is somehow like payback for what I did to Jenny all those years ago. So, but, and then Rachel was like, but you're not a changed man because you came here tonight with a gun to kill Hannah and get rid of the evidence so that nobody would know like the same thing you did all those years ago. Not only that, he was the one driving that crashed into the tree and killed his best friends. He called his dad, who was the chief of police and his dad came down there and moved Vince's body, or Bobby, Vince, Bobby, same guy, moved Bobby's body to the driver's seat and set the truck on fire. 
Bobby took the fall for it and Dan wouldn't get in trouble for actually being the one to drive the car that night. And they let Bobby go to jail for manslaughter for all those years. And Bobby had always thought that he did it, but he didn't. Not that they thought Bobby would survive. And I'm sure had Bobby slash Vince retained his memory, then they probably would have come for him or tried to do something with him. But when Bobby woke up, he didn't remember anything. So he really thought he did it. Yeah. Yeah. And all these things were happening at one time. My blood pressure was through the roof reading all these scenes. I was like, what? It's Dan? (gasps) Bobby? It's Vince? What? And I was just like freaking out. (laughs) So Dan Moore ultimately commits suicide after that because he couldn't face, you know, with everything that his daughter is going through with the trial, um, he couldn't face her having to know that her dad was also a rapist um and so the trial though the jury's verdict kelly is never able to return to the stand so basically they have to throw her whole entire testimony out the jury cannot consider it in their deliberation so everything that kelly had said on the stand is no longer usable in court so the jury ultimately found scott not guilty of rape but they found him guilty of sexual assault. The jury found Scott Blair not guilty of raping Kay, but it found him guilty on one account of sexual assault and two accounts of sexual battery. Yeah. So So he he still was found guilty and lost all of that stuff. Like everything that had been taken away from him, it was kind of like, okay, good. (laughs) I do think, you know, all of like what came out and what he said and how it all really happened because him and his freaking college roommate were doing some kind of like competition to see who could sleep with the most girls like it's just so stupid and immature and it's so scary though that to them it's like a game you know it was a Mm -hmm. game to them but he ruined number one kelly's whole entire life for her also himself over you know something like that you ruin everything that you have going for you but tell us your overall thoughts. What do you, did you love it? Did you not love it? What do you rate it? What do you want to give it? Okay, here are my thoughts. Number one, I think I kind of went into it thinking it was going to be more of a thriller. And to me, it was a mystery. Yes, I agree not with that completely. really a thriller. So Which I don't think book of the month. Yeah, right. Yes, I agree. I just don't think that is the genre of this book. I think that it really is a mystery, like a a true crime mystery, I would say. So I don't want to say I'm disappointed by that. It's just not kind of what I expected going into it. But out of five, okay, I'm going to go ahead and rate it. Out of five, I'm going to give it a four. Yeah. Because I think it talks about some really important issues And I don't think there are a lot of books out there that talk about, you know, what really needs to be discussed. And I I don't know. I just really like that. I liked the overlapping cases because it gives you more than just one, you know, case that, that you're focused on. And but it wasn't hard to follow either. It didn't confuse me. Mm -hmm. So that's my thoughts. Um, I do really like it, but. I still, I'm just waiting on that next wow book to give it a five. I haven't given any book we've, we've read yet. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think you're right. I think we both kind of went into it thinking it was going to be a thriller because I'm pretty sure on book of the month, maybe I'm just making it up, but I feel like it was labeled like suspense thriller or something like that, which it definitely had suspense in it. Do not get me wrong. Like there were moments where I was sitting there like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. But it definitely wasn't thriller but I loved it. It kept me up at night, like sitting there flipping the pages, couldn't stop reading, wanted to know what was happening next. Like it was like a movie, you know, like I was seeing it in my head so clearly. Um, I think that if I hadn't had both of the plot lines, then I would have been bored with one of them, you know? Right. Like like you said, it was both of them, which I mean, took it to the next level. I really loved it. I'm going to give it, yeah, I'm going to give it a four out of five. I loved it. It was one of like, it was great. Yeah. Highly recommend. I've been telling everybody to read it. Yeah, I think so too. And I've seen, I think a lot of people are loving, but let's go ahead and hop over to Thank you so much, Megan, for joining us on the podcast. We're so excited to have a quick little interview with you. 
Thank you so much, Madison, for having me on. I'm really excited to be here too. So to start, we just want to know a little bit more about you. So tell us where you're from and just a little bio. Okay, um, I am from, well, I'm currently living in Australia and I'm from Australia, but I've spent most of my life living all over the world. Um, and um, I moved back to Australia after living in Singapore for a long time um, with my family. And I'm currently in Melbourne, Australia with uh, three sons and a Labrador puppy that we got over the lockdown last year who is suddenly very big. Um, <laughs> and I've my husband who helps me a lot with, with the kids and gives me time to write, and um, which is really important. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I hear that you foster puppies as well. I was fostering and then over the lockdown, my son just really hammered at me to get a, our own puppy. <laughs> so <laughs> stick with what we have now. Um, <laughs> so I read that you used to be a journalist before you started writing seriously. So what made you decide to start kind of publishing your own novels? Uh, I think it's, I mean, writing is, an extension of my journalism in many ways. Um, and I think most journalists want to eventually write a book. I think it's all, uh, every, every journalist's sort of secret wish to be able to have the time to write a book. Uh, I was lucky enough to be able to, I guess, create the opportunity to have the time to do that. So it's sort of an extension of the two things. And a lot of the skills are very transferable, not just in terms of writing, but in terms of editing and research and, just being really determined because um, to be successful as a journalist, you need to be super determined. And to be able to write a book, you need to be really determined too because it's um, it's just a long kind of process and it has its ups and downs and you need to kind of keep going through all those difficult times when you've got no ideas or, you, you know, you've got writer's block or you're just sort of exhausted by the story or you think what you're writing is just terrible. <laughs> you want to rip it up and throw it <laughs> in which happens, um, you know, with every book that I've written, um, you go through those periods. So you really need to be determined. So it was sort of an extension of that, I guess. Okay, that's awesome. So um, I saw that you traveled a lot too while you were a journalist. Uh, What's your favorite place or something that you experienced that has really stuck with you? Oh, I well, I lived in um, Asia and I lived in um, the Middle East for a long time. Uh, probably longer in the Middle East. Um, I had lots of, I mean, I, in terms of just from a career perspective, I covered some really amazing, like huge stories. And I had the chance to travel to off the top of my head, one memory that always comes back to me, especially now with this whole issue with the Suez Canal and a ship that blocked the Suez Canal. Right. Um, yeah. Is Back in, I don't know when it was, probably 2002, I went to cover a peace conference in Alexandria in Egypt. And the only Mm -hmm. way of getting there at the time was with a small little executive plane. So me and about eight other journalists took this small, tiny little plane, this flight from um, Israel to Alexandria in Egypt. And we flew over that whole area of the Red Sea and the Sinai Peninsula and the Suez Canal. So I, I got to see that from, from the sky. And I'm a nervous, I'm terribly nervous on planes. So yeah. I remember being really nervous being in this little plane, but it was an amazing flight because um, I guess we were flying a lot lower than you'd normally fly and got to see a lot of scenery that you wouldn't normally get to see. And, and I remember coming into Alexandria as well, which is a city I've never seen before which is sort of these whitewashed buildings. It was just very atmospheric. So, yeah, so that's one memory that comes to mind at the moment. Yeah, that sounds so pretty. My dad, too, he's a nervous wreck when it comes to (laughs) flying. If we're taking vacation and he has to fly, he's not going. (laughs) I go, but I I kind of, I'm the one that's clutching my seat. Right. (laughs) Um. So what about the thriller genre appeals to you and do you ever think you'll write and publish a different genre? Um, I love thrillers because um, for a few reasons, especially I enjoy reading them and and watching them as well. Um, and they're kind of, I mean, I love the suspense and I think that you get to touch on or look at a lot of issues in a serious way while entertaining. So 
Um, as a genre, I really enjoy reading it and I really enjoy writing it, but I also read other genres. And um, I, for example, I mean, I love, um, I love history. I'm a huge history buff. I'd love to write historic fiction at some point. Um, and within the thriller genre, there are a lot of sort of subgenres that I would love to write in. And, and one of my favorites is espionage. So I would love to, to write an espionage. In fact, I have, to be honest, I've written one um, which is actually both espionage and a historic thriller, which was sort of the, I think it must have been the second book I wrote. So I am a true crime podcast fanatic. I listen to them probably every single day while I'm at work all day. So do you have a favorite true crime podcast that you listen to? And what is your opinion on modern day true crime podcasts and how they kind of affect cold cases and crimes today? Um, yeah, I love um, I love lots of podcasts and I, true crime is one of the ones that I listen to a lot. Um, the one that I listen to, tend to listen to mostly is Criminal. Um, which um, just because it's um, sort of 30-minute episodes and it's very varied. But, I know again, you kind of get a mental blank because um, when people ask me what I listen to or what I read. But, um, <laughs> so I'm just opening up my app right, right now so I can um, just – anyway, that's the one that I always like. Um, but there's another – a few others that I've been listening to. One of them uh, is called Murder Mile, which is a British one. I don't know if you've heard it before but it's okay um, no I haven't heard that one it's a lot of fun because especially now with COVID where we're stuck at home I mean for many of us or we're certainly not traveling that much uh it's set in London and it's kind of um written as a walking tour of London or England but it takes you to sort of these true crime locations and and it's great I really enjoy that too but there are heaps that I listen to I just um there's one called Detective and and so on so whenever I have a chance I listen to them so uh, can you tell us a little bit about your writing process? Do you prefer to do outlines and lay out the story or do you just kind of dive right in and start writing and see what happens? Uh, well, I'm still kind of working out my process, to be honest. Um, I think just like with writing, it's it's just constant refinement. Um, and I, I'm, I don't like my process particularly because I just kind of write and figure things out as I go along. And it has its pros and its cons. It's very stressful and I think it kind of lands up requiring a lot of rewriting when I do a second edit sometimes. Um, but on the other hand, I see opportunities or I, you know, I see, yeah, opportunities to take the story in different directions that wouldn't really come to me if I think if I'd sat down and actually just worked out a structured story so it has its pros and its cons I would love to be able to just sit down and write a structure and then write because I think it would be I guess more efficient and and less pressured because I kind of know everything that I'm going to write that doesn't work for me at the moment and I'm not sure if it's just if it's a personality type thing or whatever but anyway, but it's something that I think with writing, I mean, it's one of the things I enjoy about it is it's always about refining and, and making it better. So both in terms of the type, the writing itself and, you know, making dialogue sharper and, and, and building characters more vibrantly as well as the actual process as well and refining that. Absolutely. I think we hear that a lot from writers. You know, whenever you get that inspiration, you want to get it out and write the scene and create the dialogue and get it on the paper before you lose it instead of going through and creating the outline. So I can completely understand wanting to, you know, write whenever you see it in your head. Okay, so since you're based in Australia, I'm not sure if you're gonna have an answer to this question or not. But are you familiar with the Stanford uh, rape trial with Brock Turner? Yes, I am. I did want to ask if that was kind of the basis of this book, The Night Swim, because there are, you know, very, a lot of similarities between the two. Um, no, it wasn't. But um, I, I mean, I, again, as a, as a, I guess, former journalist, and I, I'm kind of a news junkie, I just sort of constantly reading news. And so I was on top of a lot of cases 
not just in the US and not that just that particular case, but cases uh, in Europe and in Australia as well, and and even and in Asia too. So in many ways, I drew from many different cases. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I guess maybe the Scott Blair being a swimmer was taken from that. Too. Okay, <laughs> that yeah. was just the very first one I thought of whenever we started reading it, and so that's just I just had to ask. Yeah, <laughs> and unfortunately, there are lots of cases that are similar. There's lots of rape cases where there are those similarities. So that's the world that we live in today. But I'm going to take us into a couple of questions about the book. And to start us off, can you just tell us about the inspiration behind the scenery, the small town, and just tell us about how you created the town where the trial is taking place? Yeah, so I, um, it was important for this book because I wanted to explore the trial and its impact not just on the people involved in the trial but on the community a lot of what I do is just kind of very organic as I started writing I I wrote the first uh, chapter which is the current chapter which is Hannah's um, opening chapter and that sort of already set the scene and I'd already had a sense of place once I wrote that scene and I knew it was going to be by the sea and I knew it was going to have that sort of small town aspect to it and and funnily enough it had to be a small town but it also had to be a town big enough where you'd actually have a trial because you don't have criminal trials in every small town yeah um, so, you know, and I, I knew that I wanted to have it in this sort of area in North Carolina because I had researched, you know, various locations and, and that place, that area was just was really interesting for me. Um, just atmospheric and it had that kind of, it has that sort of blue collar edge and it has really yeah. interesting history and, and, you know, it gets hit by hurricanes every season and on all of that. So, well, not every year, but often. And, um, right. And so all of that kind of gets sort of plays a part as I, as I start writing and it kind of all comes together and, and creates this seaside town that is, that is, um, is fictional, but, um, that has sort of, I guess within the book, it has a life of its own. And when I write and I, I created this place, I'm, I mean, I see it in my head. So I know the layout. I know where all the streets are and everything. It's not just sort of a random place. If I, when I write, it's like, I'll have a character going, you know, like Rachel's jogging and she might jog in this direction. I'll be like, no, she can't jog there because she can't get to where she wants to go. Like in my head, it's a fully developed place. <laughs> I can see, I know where everything is and, and on all of that, you know, it really comes to life, at least in my imagination and hopefully on the pages of the book as well. Absolutely. Yeah, it does. yeah. I mean, the scenery is so detailed. I really feel like I'm there whenever I'm reading it. And can you tell us a little bit about the inspiration for the characters who live in the town? You know, do you base it off of real people? You know, where does your inspiration come from when creating these people? Yeah, it just kind of, you know, that, that's the, you know, we talked about the writing process and that's the advantage of my writing process, I guess, is that it just sort of emerges. The characters almost take me through the story. And as I write, then a sort of another character just sort of pops up and and then that character starts taking on a life and a form of its own. Um, I once read a, a, I think an article or an interview with Stephen King, and I think he uses a similar process, if I'm not mistaken. And I asked him about his characters, you know, because some writers will write a detailed character sketch and everything. Mm-hmm. And and he said that he didn't do that. That for him, a character was like you're sitting around the campfire, and you've got these sort of shadows coming in from the dark, and as they get closer, they start taking on shape and form and they become unique. And, and that's, for me, that's kind of what happens. So I start writing and then suddenly this character emerges and their backstory emerges and everything, their likes and dislikes. And it's not something that I've kind of consciously created. I haven't sat down and sort of written a character sketch or anything. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, that's yeah. really interesting. I think that's beautiful. I think the whole shadow coming into the detail, that that's a really cool analogy. And can you tell us a little bit about the corruption from the law enforcement in the book, specifically with Dan Moore's father, Russ? Why do you think it was important to include issues like that, like corruption in your book? Again, I don't think it was a conscious decision and it kind of was plot driven in some ways. But certainly in the past, and I know of cases, you know, I mean, I guess more historic cases going back, you know, decades where you did have these types of sexual assault cases that were either not brought to trial um, and very frequently not brought to trial because 
people behind the scenes were kind of protecting uh, people as well. And, you know, I think that's less common today, but in the past, those sort of things happened and it sort of found its way into my story. I was going to say the the trial itself, there was such detail, you know, whenever I was reading the scenes where Rachel was inside the courtroom, I really felt like I was there. Do you have experience um, with the court? Or is that from your experience as a journalist? Or is that just from research? Uh, a bit of experience as a journalist and a bit of research and talking to people who've who've handled these types of trials. But also, I love, I mean, I've always loved um, books and movies with trials. <laughs> so yeah, I've always, loved, you know, whether I don't know, from To Kill a Mockingbird is like an obvious one that comes to mind. John Grisham books. I love trials. They're just, I was actually so excited to write the trial scenes. It was like, yeah, yeah, it was fabulous. I really enjoyed it. Any cool research for this book? Maybe talking to true crime podcasters or people in the law or anything? Yeah, I did. I mean, I can't mention names, but I did speak to people right. who've been involved in cases like this. And I read a lot of transcripts as well of actual cases in various places in the world. Did quite a lot of research. A lot of my research, I don't, I don't tend to do a lot of research up front. I kind of do enough research to get going. And then as I write, I'll kind of, I realize, oh, I don't know enough about this. I better do some research and then I'll break off from the writing and I'll, if necessary, talk to people or whatever needs to be done. And then I get back to the writing. I think it breaks up the intensity of it as well. Yeah. And throughout the book, one of the things that really interested me was the the dialogue. You do such a good job of portraying the misogynistic attitude and the mentality that throughout the town. And one of the conversations that particularly stood out to me was Rachel's first encounter with Greg Blair, the father. And when he just casually dropped the word pussy, when the two of them were discussing his son and Kelly, can you tell us about like how the dialogue developed, you know, in your, in your process? I, well, I really enjoy writing dialogue. And it's one of the things when I started writing novels that I was really intimidated by was writing dialogue. But I actually, I really enjoy it. I think it really breathes life into a book and it's really super important. So, and usually I'll write the dialogue when I do my first draft and then I'll sharpen it in the next draft. So in that particular instance, I think I think I had the general gist in the original dialogue, but then when I kind of do a second edit, I then will sharpen it. And somehow I think that's how that particular section that you mentioned kind of worked out. I I really enjoy it. And it just, um, like I said, it really breathes life and gives the characters, giving a character a voice is so much more impactful than even a description. Yeah, absolutely. What was your (laughs) favorite part of writing The Night Swim? And do you have any favorite characters or favorite locations that uh, during the creation of the book? I loved, actually, I loved a lot of the characters in the book. I loved Hannah and Rachel in particular. I like loved creating this place in my head. So, this, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's an existing area, but the the town itself is fictional. So that was a lot of fun to do. Um, in terms of a specific place, the cemetery was really fun to write. It was really interesting. It was based on a cemetery that actually exists. I mean, it's a different cemetery, but there is a, I guess I was um, inspired by a a cemetery in North Carolina, which um, is old historic cemetery. And I went online and I sort of read some of the gravestones and some of the stories of some of the people buried there. So that was, I mean, it sounds weird because it's, (laughs) it's a cemetery. (laughs) There's so much history and in, in cemeteries and in this particular one, because of the area that it's in and and the things that have occurred there over the, the centuries. So that was, that was quite interesting. And I enjoyed that. Yeah, that was a cool scene. I enjoyed reading that one. Yeah. If you could pick any character from the book to be friends with in real life, who would it be and why? Oh, it'd probably <laughs> definitely be Rachel. Um, right. <laughs> yes. I, I really like Rachel. She's, you know, I don't always write char- characters that I like a lot, but I could definitely be friends with her. Um, she's really gutsy and she's really focused and motivated. And she's, she is very much, um, you know, she was a journalist. So I, I really relate to her on that level as well before she became a podcaster. Yes. What has been the most rewarding part of being a published author and how has it been since your book released through Book of the Month? 
It's been amazing. I get so many emails from people and that's one of the most rewarding parts actually is because I'm getting so many messages from people who, well, either, especially now with COVID, you know, coronavirus, who either my book helped them get through lockdowns or I had one lady who, who messaged me, she'd just gone through surgery. Other people who have actually had to deal with some of the issues raised in the book. And, and that's really, for me, that's just incredibly rewarding. And I really appreciate those messages. Can we count on any more Megan novels coming out soon? I hope so. I've, I, I wrote one. I've just finished writing um, one and I'm hoping to start a new one in, a, in about two or three weeks. We're going on holiday next week. So when we get back, because it's school holidays here and I can't write during school holidays because my kids are, you know, <laughs> underfoot and entertained. <laughs> but yeah, for sure. Um, I've always, I actually have more ideas than I have time to write them. So, and it, it is a long process writing a novel and a very, in some ways, exhausting process. So I'm not sure if you're a drinker, but we are called Books, Fights and Booze. So do you have a favorite cocktail or what is your go-to drink? My go-to drink would be a, a glass of Australian Shiraz wine, which I drink sometimes while I'm cooking, which is what I do okay. last night after a stressful day. <laughs> Cocktails, not really. Um, I do okay. like in the summer, I like to drink a beer shandy. Do they have beer shandies in the US? Yes, not many, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> they aren't as popular, but we do have some shandies here. Yeah, that's a nice summer drink. Um, so you did mention that you like to cook. So what is a favorite recipe that you like to make often or for your family? Um, my eldest son is crazy about schnitzel. He loves schnitzel. <laughs> so, um, and over, we had a very long lockdown here in where I live in Australia last year. And so I, I kind of perfected my schnitzel recipe. So um, he's now in his final year of high school, which is um, a really tough year here because it's all exam based and it's kind of a do or die year. So I promised him I'd make him schnitzel twice a week. Um, <laughs> Careful, we're going to have to come down and try it. I mean, I do love some schnitzel. Well, I have to say that I, I keep saying, you know, if my writing career doesn't work out, then I'll just open a little schnitzel restaurant. Yes, yes. <laughs> But I actually like cooking. I mean, I've got three sons and they have big appetites, so it's kind of fun, you know, feeding them. Well, to wrap up this interview, I would just like to thank you so much, Megan, not only for joining us on the podcast, but I would like to applaud you on writing books that highlight important social issues. Almost every woman, unfortunately, has either experienced sexual assault or knows someone personally who has been a victim. And like we already said, education is just so important right now. And Madison and I did want to tell the listeners for anyone who's looking for educational information or support for sexual assault and rape, there is an amazing website called RAIN.org. It's R-A-I-N-N.org. And they have so much information on there, support for people. So if you need that, absolutely, please visit the website and check it out. And then Megan, just thank you so much for joining us all the way from Australia. Yeah. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed our chat. Thanks so much, Lexi and Madison, and enjoy the rest thank of your day. You. Thank you so much. It was so much fun. So we really love the night swim, and we're definitely going to keep an eye out for any new books that you have coming out soon. Awesome. Take care. Thank you guys so much for listening. This episode was, I feel like this whole, the book, The Night Swim was such an important one, like such an important read. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So I really enjoyed it. I loved getting to hear from Megan as well. And so that she could just give us a little better understanding of what was kind of going on behind the scenes when she was writing it. I loved it. I really I did, did overall. Yes. Thank you so much to Megan. We loved having you on the podcast. Thank you to everyone for listening to Megan on the podcast. It was, I just love interviewing authors and hearing the behind the scenes. Like yeah. said. So for all of our uh, cocktail recipes, dinner recipes, book reviews, interviews with our authors, you can get it all on our website, www.booksbitesbooze.com. Subscribe to the website while you're there so you can get updates and email alerts when we upload a new episode or a new blog post or anything like that. But before you go, let's talk about our next book. 
Yes. So for the next book, we chose Too Good to Be True. It's by Carola Lovering. I think that's how you say it. Yes, it is labeled thriller. So I think this one is actually going to be a thriller. Um, The quick take on book of the month is unsettling and twisted. This creepy, creepy thriller will make you wonder which of its narrators is telling the truth. So I'm really excited for this one. Yeah. Like on Goodreads, it says one love story, two marriages and three versions of the truth. So I think we're going to be reading from possibly three different perspectives on this one. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's going to be kind of similar to The Night Swim and where we're going to be following all the different accounts and kind of trying to figure out who's telling the truth. But it's going to be more like love-based betrayal, a little bit more drama. Yeah, I hope it's a little, I want like a little scare. I want like, I want want my heart to be pounding. Me too. So that's what I'm waiting on. Come on, Too Good to Be True. I'm hoping that you're a five out of five. I really want to give a book a five out of five. I just haven't found it yet. (laughs) I have to say, I really thought about giving The Night Swim a five out of five. I really did because I loved it. But I just, I don't know. Like you said, I'm waiting for that one. But I do love The Night Swim. Highly recommend. Highly, highly. Thank you guys so much for listening to our discussion. We will be back with part one of Too Good to Be True in a couple of weeks. Yes, we're going to be more on schedule, I promise. Um, We just had a lot going on. (laughs) Yes, oh my God, I've been moving. I just finished school last week. Yes, for the past two weeks, you've been moving into your new house. Yeah, but the summer's coming the weather's warming up. We have some exciting things coming. So yeah. just uh, stay tuned and keep reading along. Don't forget to check out our new website, www.booksbytesboos, and follow us on Instagram at booksbytesboos. Thanks, guys. Bye.